very encouraging verse, John 17, 24. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prays this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and senses to taste what Christ speaks of here. And these are things that can only be accomplished if if, if you, Spirit, do a work. But it is our heart, it is our great longing to know more of our glorious Savior. That it would be our song, not not just through all of the ages, but even every day as we wake up, it would be to know Christ more and to treasure Christ more. And so I pray that you would awaken us to see and savor Jesus Christ. We ask these things in His name. Amen. What do you think heaven will be like? What is it in particular that you are looking forward to when when your time comes to be in the Lord's presence? If a young child or maybe a coworker were to ask you about heaven, what would you tell them? Or, in other words, what would you say to convince them that they should want to be there and that they should do everything they can to gain access to it. I think when most people think about heaven, uh, typically all sorts of pleasures uh, fill their mind. It's a place of fulfillment of all sorts of desires. In fact, it's hard for us to think about heaven aside from pleasure. We imagine it to be a place where pain is absent and pleasure is full. And this really goes back to the assertion that Aristotle made centuries ago when he said that maximum pleasure is the highest good. The greatest thing we could ever pursue and ever uh, find is to have our pleasure maximized. Pleasure, maximum pleasure is the highest good. But if pleasure is the highest good... Why did God create man? Especially knowing how unpleasant the consequences would be. Not to mention the horrific cost of our redemption. If maximum pleasure was the highest good, why did God choose to embrace suffering and dishonor? From his creatures. Not to mention the cross. Moreover, we're told in the Bible 
that God has always been and will always be eternally happy and satisfied, needing nothing, eternally content. He exists in a state, you could say, of maximum pleasure. And he did in eternity past. Delighting in one another as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were eternally happy and content. Then why did they create man? Why would they choose something that was not the maximum pleasure? In fact, just the opposite. Why would God let go of that happiness and joy and embrace horrific suffering? Because God, we know in his omniscience, when he created man, he knew that man would sin, that man would rebel against him. And that the cost of that rebellion would be torture and the eventual death of Jesus. So if the Father and the Son and the Spirit were already eternally pleased, why would they give all of that pleasure up to suffer? They chose to suffer. So somehow suffering that they went through achieved a greater end than pleasure and happiness because they already had that. There must have been something better than just pleasure and happiness. What end would prompt them to choose to suffer so immensely? What would be worth it? I believe the answer to that question is found within Jesus' prayer to God the Father just hours before he laid down his life. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. In this verse, we discover the purpose statement of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, this is why you are saved. Jesus laid down his life for us so that we might see his glory. Not that God was unsatisfied and so that he wanted to show off. That's not the point because we know God was already content. God didn't need anything from us. He was satisfied. It wasn't that he wanted people to simply admire him more, but that he wanted others to enjoy the glory that he had already eternally enjoyed. He wanted to share the eternal joy of his glory with other people. With his creation. The Trinity wanted others to share in the joy of their glory. The glory they enjoyed in eternity past was so amazing. They were willing to set aside their peace and their pleasure for just a time. So that others might eventually Enjoy their glory along with them. All of the suffering that they've had to endure since the fall till the new heavens and the new earth was worth it. it. Giving up all of that was worth it. Why? So that some 
might be able to eternally enjoy this glory forever. Jonathan Edwards explained it this way. God, who is thus happy in himself, has a natural propensity and inclination to communicate happiness to some other beings. This inclination in the nature of God is what is called goodness. And it was because of this inclination that he created the world. And especially, he created men and angels in it. It was not that he might be made more happy himself, but that he might make something else happy. That he might make them blessed in the beholding of his excellency, and might this way glorify himself. So the glory enjoyed by the Trinity was so wonderful that they were compelled to share it with others, even at a staggering cost. Consider the cost of this decision. We know, of course, that God is omniscient. Imagine having perfect knowledge of all the evil that has taken place. Not only seeing all the evil that's taken place in the world, but seeing the heart behind all of that evil. But without question, the greatest cost of man's creation was the humiliation of Jesus in having to become man and then suffer horribly on one of the most gruesome torture devices ever invented. And then to bear all the wrath of God for all that he has seen, all that sin that God has seen, to bear all of that upon himself. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. See, Jesus knowing that all, all these things would happen to Him, He freely chose to give up this glory that He enjoyed with God the Father in eternity past. So that men and women might also share, taste, and enjoy the splendor of his glory for all eternity. Now I realize that, that God would choose such immense suffering just so that we might enjoy his glory. That that notion might seem a bit absurd. And, and I realize that part of the reason because of that is because of our own understanding of glory. And I think it's because we just really have only the vaguest understanding of what real glory is. We don't we don't possess the mental categories that would allow us to properly appreciate the reality of what God's glory is actually like. For instance, just like we don't have the mental capacity to really understand the concept of eternity. We can understand the idea, but we can't grasp it. Our minds just can't conceive of the reality. We can understand the idea, but we're so bound by our humanity that even our imagination falters to truly understand. But God understands. He knows how great and satisfying His glory is. 
and all the suffering of the world is worth it if only some of his creatures might be able to enjoy that glory with him for all eternity. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So if God's glory is infinitely valuable, if Christ's glory is infinitely valuable, how do we know what this glory is like? How can we, how can we get a sense of what Christ's glory is like this side of the grave? Well, God gives us glimpses, what I would call shadows of his glory. It's, it's difficult for us to imagine that glory is actually worth suffering for. But clearly, in God's mind, it is. But part, again, part of the problem lies in our understanding of glory. We tend, to, we tend to think of glory in terms of things like winning a championship or being crowned a king. I grew up... Uh, watching the Disney Channel, and I remember right after the 1984 Olympics, um, there was a there was a special on the Disney Channel called 16 Days of Glory," and it's you know it was, it was looking at the performances of people like Greg Louganis and uh, Mary Lou Retton, and all that they accomplished. 16 days of glory, but medals, even gold medals. Trophies, crowns, military victories, these are not the essence of real glory. These are what the Bible would describe as vain glory. In Philippians 2, 3, um, Paul actually uses this word, kinodoxion. It's a a word brought together, kino, empty, and doxion, glory, where we get the word the doxology, which means glory, to glorify. So in verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It's the word empty glory there, or vain glory. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So vain glory is at best just a shadow of glory. There is, there is an element of glory there. But it's, it's glory that is vain. That is, it fades away over a time. In fact, rather quickly. And we've all seen this. We've all tasted this. One moment, everybody loves a person and he's honored and exalted and applauded. The next minute, they're vilified. We see this in politics. We see this in sports. In business. In vain glory is the glory that Christ warned the Jews about when he said in uh, John 544, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? You're looking at this vainglory that quickly fades away. If that's what you're attracted to, you won't seek this glory that comes from God. Now contrast this with the glory we're supposed to seek. Romans 2, 6. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing Seek for glory and honor and immortality. For those who seek it, he will give eternal life. And so we're expected to seek this greater glory. True glory. 
And this is this true glory is the is the kind of glory that's worth taking up the cross for. That's worth losing everything for glory that will never fade. It's not superficial. It's not fleeting because it is the actual radiance of the very nature of God. And even though man has not seen God at any time, we're still able to get glimpses of his glory in creation. Romans 1.20 says, His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. I was thinking earlier this week of um, one of my favorite Christian songwriters, Andrew Peterson. He wrote... Um, in fact, it was the first song I'd ever heard that he had written. It's a song entitled, I've Got Nothing to Say. And it was, it's, it's really just a song about driving through Arizona and just witnessing the glory of the landscape. This is what he says in his song. Hey, Jamie, do you see? I'm broken by this majesty. So much glory in so little time. So turn off the radio. Let's listen to the songs we know. All praise to him who reigns on high. And I don't believe that I've believed in you as deeply as today. I reckon what I'm trying to say is there's nothing more, nothing more to say. And the mountains sing your glory. Hallelujah. The canyons echo sweet, amazing grace. My spirit sails. The mighty gales are bellowing your name. I've got nothing to say. And I think all of us have seen glimpses of this. I know Steve has. He's told me about it. But you go, I remember as a, as a high school student, some of those gripping moments, I mean, I, they're riveted into my mind. I remember laying on my back at night, just staring up at the stars and just, just being overwhelmed and, and, and really compelled to sing, compelled to pray. That's because God's glory, that's what we're, you're getting just a glimpse, just a taste of, of who created that. It's a window pointing to Him. David recognized this glory of God and the glory of the heavens when he said in Psalm 91, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He even glimpsed it in his own design when he said, For you formed me in inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God gives us glimpses of his glory in nature. One of the best ways. But he also gives us glimpses of his glory In his word, that's actually the point of Psalm 19. It starts by talking about the glory of God as displayed in the heavens. And then the psalmist masterfully masterfully works to the glory of God witnessed in his word. And often God will use metaphors in scripture that point to things in nature to help us understand his nature. Because he wants us to know him. He wants us to understand him. And one of the most prevalent metaphors that he uses is fire. 
And one of the most prevalent descriptions of God in the Bible is that he is a consuming fire. Now, the ubiquitous presence of fire stations in our cities are just a testimony to the devastating powers of fire and the fear that they provoke. I mean, fires burn things. They destroy things. They're unpredictable when they get out of control. And yet, at the same time, fire sustains life upon this earth. In particular, the huge ball of fire at the center of our solar system has always provided mankind with light, with warmth, and with life. And what keeps the sun's fire burning is this process of converting hydrogen into helium. Apparently, when the sun converts hydrogen to helium, it actually loses mass. In fact, every second, the sun converts 700 million tons of hydrogen into helium. And in all the multitude of years that the sun has been burning, however long that's been, it has only consumed a few hundredths of 1% of its total mass. Astronomers guess that the sun will be able to keep this process going for another 7 billion years. And so this huge ball of fire in the sky will continue to burn and continue to radiate a glory that's so magnificent that our eyes, even though light years away from it, can still not look directly at it without being blinded by its glory. As C.S. Lewis said of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, we can say that the sun is good, but it's certainly not safe. In fact, I bear in my body the marks of the danger of the sun. Most of you are aware that I was recently diagnosed with skin cancer. That's what the scars here from, this is the surgery I had. And this is really the result of growing up treasuring the beauty and the warmth of the California sun. I loved it. And I hated sunscreen because it's gooey and sticky and nasty. And by not taking seriously the dangers of the sun in my skin, I now have learned to put on sunscreen and to listen to my wife and her wisdom. And yet, the sun is just a minuscule part of God's creation. In fact, God has created trillions upon trillions of galaxies. And for centuries, people have dreamed of landing upon the moon. But I've never heard of anybody who has dreamed of landing upon the sun or in any star because they know you would be immediately consumed. And so if the consuming glory of stars is too much for us to handle, how much more the consuming glory of the one who created all of the stars in a moment? The very first time God spoke to Israel, he displayed his glory as a consuming fire on Mount Sinai. And he explicitly warned that anything approaching the mountain would be consumed. 
God's glory was so intense that any unholy thing that come near it came near, excuse me, would be consumed. Just in the same way that anything that comes near the sun's glory is immediately incinerated. It's the same picture God is trying to convey. And so in order to protect Israel from the consuming power of his glory, God provided access, really a, a safety, a provision of safety for Israel called the Mosaic Covenant. That was the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaiac Covenant. Follow these laws. And if you follow these laws, you will not be consumed by my glory. This is your protection from me. So again, the purpose of the covenant was to allow the Israelites to dwell in the glory of his presence without being consumed. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, 23, he says, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image of the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Don't forget these commandments, because if you don't, you will be consumed. He's good, but he's not safe. All the laws God gave to Moses were established in order to sanctify Israel, to make them holy so that they could dwell in the presence of him without being consumed. Whatever was not holy was consumed by God's presence. And that's why everything and everyone who served in the temple or who served in the tabernacle, they had to be made holy. They had to be cleansed. That's why they slaughtered the animals and they sprinkled the blood upon both the, um, the vessels in the tabernacle as well as the priests. They were sanctified so that they would not be consumed by the glory of God in the tabernacle. They had to be made holy. And this depiction of God as a consuming fire is not actually limited just to the Old Testament. This is a picture that God brings us in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 12. Oops, sorry. The Lord says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For our God is a consuming fire. And so God is frequently depicted in the Bible as a consuming fire. But what's really fascinating to me is that the first time God actually reveals himself to his people. And particularly into Moses. Was not in the form of a consuming fire. But actually just the opposite. Of an unconsuming fire. In Exodus 3 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. So, why an unconsuming fire? Especially with all these references throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament that God is a consuming fire. Why would he choose in coming to Moses to display himself this way? Well, it seems that the reason the bush was not consumed is the very reason that Moses was told to remove his sandals. 
Moses, remove your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. The bush was not consumed because it was part of holy ground. And what God is conveying in this picture is it wasn't consumed because God had made it holy. So this is the lesson we should learn. That which is holy will not be consumed by God. And that is what the unburning bush is communicating to Moses. That which is holy can remain in the presence of God and not be consumed. And so at one point we learn that God is dangerous. He tells Moses, don't come near. Don't come near. But then in the next sentence, we see he's not bent on destruction. The bush is not consumed. He's dangerous, but he's not bent on destruction. He has a greater desire. What God is bent on is drawing people back to himself so that they could dwell in his midst. That's awesome. This is why he sends Moses. Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Why? So they can worship me and so that I could dwell in them and be their God and they will be my people. He wants them to see his glory. So how can man who is unholy avoid being consumed by God's holy presence? How can you sinner approach a holy God and not be consumed? How can you be certain that you will be able to endure God's eternal consuming glory when you are ushered into his presence? Because the only way that you can avoid being consumed by the glory of God is if you also are made holy. Leviticus 11.44 You shall be holy for I am holy. Well, as we know, that is why God had to become man. Jesus became man so that he could become, so that man could become holy, and so that man could dwell in the presence of the holy glory of God. This is what he says in Colossians 1.19. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death. Notice this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why does God want us to to present us holy and blameless and above reproach so that we wouldn't be consumed? He wants us to share his glory, to know his glory, to enjoy his glory, but we can't unless we're holy. Jesus became man because he alone could provide us protection from the holy glory of God. However, without the provision of his atoning sacrifice, men will be forever exposed to the undiluted, white-hot wrath of God. And this is the reason hell is depicted with fire. God is a consuming fire. Because God is holy and all men are sinners, the only protection from the wrath of God can be found in Jesus Christ. 
Again, the glory of God is not safe. It's the most deadly, powerful, and more importantly, most precious thing anybody can ever experience. Jesus Christ died for us, not just so that we could be protected, but so that we could enjoy His all-consuming glory for eternity. And He died not just so that we could enjoy His glory. This is is even more breathtaking. He died not just so that we could enjoy His glory, but so that we too could become glorified. That we too would share in His glory. So not just to see it and delight in it and enjoy it, but to actually partake in it. Notice what he says in Daniel. All those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And think of it. Whoever trusts in Christ and repents from their sins will, will possess eternal glory forever and ever. Or Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. They're not even worth saying in the same sentence. Not even worth comparing to the glory that is to revealed to us. And check this out. Verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation wants to see that. The stars want to stand in awe of us. It's amazing. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingness, well, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's amazing. When once we would be consumed, now we will behold and partake in the glory of our Creator. This is the glory that is coming to all who are in Christ. And Lisa, I want to I want to speak particularly to anybody who might be an unbeliever in this room. You might be thinking, I find so much delight in my sinful pleasures that I just I don't think I can leave them. But you must recognize that God will not tolerate rivals to His glory and love. You must either love God or this world. Sin or holiness. Christ or Satan. There's no third choice. And with regard to your supposed pleasures, the reality is unless you are in Christ, you have never tasted Real pleasure. Now I'm not saying there isn't some pleasure there. 
But you know as well as I know that pleasure is quickly replaced with even greater grief and loss. And it doesn't last. That is not the kind of pleasure that Christ gives. And I'm not just speaking fluff. The, the, there is true and lasting pleasure. That is why you might think it's strange that we are nearly in tears and sometimes in tears as we sing these songs about God. It's because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. A few moments of the joys to be found in Him are far better than the longest time spent in the sinful pleasure of this world upon which God's curse rests. And I challenge you, if you question that, ask any Christian in this room and they will say, absolutely true. Absolutely. And when we have, and when we have sought to leave the pleasure of God and to indulge in the pleasures of this world, we hate it. We hate it. It's our greatest grief. That's why we confess. We hate it. Because we've tasted something far greater. But then also consider the infinite love of Christ. That's what's calling you to come to him for life, mercy, grace, peace, and eternal salvation. Jesus Christ stands before you now, calling you, inviting, encouraging you to come to him. You can almost hear him saying, consider your end. Just consider your end. Because you know it's coming. Will you not have pity on your souls? Come to me. I will remove all of your sins. All of your sorrows. All of your fears. All of your burdens. I will give rest to your souls. Consider the greatness of His mercy, the grace that He offers, the love that He has in so earnestly calling you to Him. Don't let the poison of unbelief, which will only lead you to ruin, quench this opportunity to come to Christ. And how should we who are already in Christ respond? Well, I'll appeal to my favorite theologian in his work, The Glory of Christ. John Owen writes this. Most of our spiritual weakness and unfruitfulness is caused by letting other things occupy our minds too easily. When we have our minds filled with the love of Christ and his glory, and our hearts burn with a great love for him, We shall have no room for anything else. It's only a continual view of Christ and His glory that will stir us up and encourage us to watch and fight continually against the deceitful workings of sin. The experience of those things which make Christ glorious has a power to make us want to do only the things that please Him. And one way that Christ has actually commanded us so that we might see and savor His glory is through the remembrance of His sacrifice as we take the Lord's table.
If you are a follower of Christ and you desire to have fellowship with one another here, I would invite you to join as we celebrate in His sacrifice together. If you're a follower of Christ and you love His church, and you desire to build one another up and to serve one another and to exalt Him at whatever cost to yourself, I encourage you to come. So it's going to take a minute for me just to transition over to, to the worship set. So I'm going to close just briefly in prayer. And then after I pray, I encourage you to continue in prayer and to consider even the things that, that the Lord might have put upon your heart. Maybe confession. It may be a request. It may be, Christ, open my eyes. Whatever it might be. And then I'll lead us together in partaking in the Lord's table and in song. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need not just to know about you, Father, but we need you. We need you to fill us, to satisfy us, to open our eyes to all that you've given us in Christ. God, that we would stop living for these empty, vain things. And it would be our joy to sacrifice for you. Our joy even to suffer. Because we see these sufferings as momentary and light. God, so that these, that, 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 that Second Corinthians would not just simply be a verse that we quote when things are difficult, but it would become a verse that drives us because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And we just, we want others to taste and see. And we don't mind suffering if they get to taste and see the same things that we have seen. So they too might taste and see in all of its fullness the glory of God.